tonight is uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. I think I might manage to pull it off. It'll be a shorter sermon on a Lord's Supper occasion, so we can uh, get out of here on time. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Before we read them, I'll pray and then we will uh, dive in. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who takes the words written on the pages in front of us and writes them on our hearts. And we ask that he would do just that in our midst tonight as we take a look at these two significant verses. We pray that your name would be glorified and that Jesus Christ and his righteousness, his work, his obedience that's credited to our account would be magnified and something which gives us great reason to praise. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, Romans chapter 1 at verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. A beloved congregation of hope and grace, and everyone with us here tonight, um, I would like to spend a lot of time just diving into these two verses, but I want us to give us also a historical perspective on them, and also dive into what Luther discovered. What is it that Martin Luther found, particularly in verse 17, and what does that mean for us today? But as we uh, sort of get a running start into the verses, Just a little bit of historical background, indulgences became a part of the church's life uh, around uh, AD 1200 or so, give or take a little bit. Originally, indulgences were certificates of exemption from punishment, temporal punishment, uh, by God for one's sins, and they were obtained through some form of penance, some outward form of prayer or fasting, something which demonstrated to the church that you were a repentant believer and thus uh, in line for God's temporary mercy instead of punishment. On April 18, 1506, Pope Julius II laid the first stone in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Construction took about 110 years, and along the way, uh, the cost uh, was high. It cost the Roman Catholic Church a lot of money to build the basilica, and it actually was the largest Christian church building until the late 1980s. So just a massive building. It just so happened that building St. Peter's Basilica cost a lot of money, and it just so happened that Luther's archbishop in Germany, Albrecht of Mainz, had a lot of debt he was having trouble paying off about the same time. And so indulgences, rather than being gained through outward works of repentance, started going on sale. And they started going on sale in such a way that you could buy them, literally just purchase them. You can purchase exemption from God's wrath and judgment against you just if you have money. And uh, rather than, again, being uh, purchased or gained through outward repentance, you could just use money to get them. This became a huge source of revenue for the Roman Catholic Church and it likely would have gone on a long time, but a man by the name of uh, Johannes Tetzel sort of an errand boy for the Pope, entered Germany and Wittenberg in particular, selling indulgences. And he had the famous saying, where the coin of the coffer rings, when it does, 
the soul from purgatory springs. Now, Wittenberg is the region where Martin Luther was. He walked into Luther's town, as it were, and Luther did not like this because he thought that the sale of indulgences actually prevents people from seeking God's divine grace. And so uh, this sale of indulgences by Tetzel in Wittenberg is exactly what put Luther on the map because it was soon after that Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg on October 31, 1517. He also sent notice to his archbishop regarding these abuses of the sale of indulgences, but he never really heard back from him because again, remember, his archbishop was financially benefiting from the sale of indulgences along with the Pope who was trying to build the Basilica in Rome. So at this time, it is thought by many that Luther was already a believer. He's nailed the 95 theses. He's put his finger on a lot of the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. And but by Luther's own testimony, he's very likely not a believer at the time when he nailed the 95 theses on the church door. He's put his finger on abuses in the church, but not necessarily a born again Christian. Uh, uh, when he, he wanted to debate, he wanted to get down to the bottom of what does the Bible teach on things. But for Luther, there was something that tortured him. There was something that he hadn't yet come to grips with in 1517 on the day of Reformation. And it was this, the passage in Romans 1, 17, that the just shall live by faith. And in the gospel, God has revealed a righteousness from himself. And here are his own words describing his situation. These words, righteous and righteousness of God, struck my conscience as flashes of lightning, frightened me each time, frightening me each time I heard them. If God is righteous, he punishes. But by the grace of God, as I once meditated upon these words in the tower, the righteous shall live by faith and the righteousness of God, there suddenly came into my mind the thought that if we as righteous are to live by faith, and if the righteousness of faith is to be for salvation to everyone who believes, then it is not our merit, but the mercy of God." Thus my soul was refreshed, for it was the righteousness of God by which we are justified and saved through Christ. These words became more pleasant to me. Through this word, the Holy Spirit enlightened me in the tower. When was he in the tower? By his testimony, about two years after he had nailed the 95 theses on the church door, so around 1519. And what is it that Luther finally discovered during his tumultuous years of study and asceticism as a monk and upheaval and spiritual conflict, he discovered what we're going to look at, particularly in verse 17. As we walk through these two verses, I want us to notice just two things. The gospel is the power of God, and the gospel is powerful because of what it reveals. So those two things, the gospel is the power of God, and the gospel is powerful because of what it reveals. So first of all, the gospel is the power of God. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the Apostle Paul, in describing the gospel, says, look, I'm not ashamed of it. I want to preach it to the, the believers in Rome is what he wanted to do. And he tells them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the language of ashamed has to do with being disgraced or personally humiliated. So Paul's saying, I'm associated with, I'm identified with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's what I do. And there are plenty of reasons you could be ashamed to be associated with the gospel and to proclaim it because oftentimes it will land you in prison or you'll be looked down upon by other people. 
But he said, I'm not ashamed of it, which is another way of saying I love it. I delight in it. I think it's incredible, this gospel. I'm proud of it. It's my boast. So much so that he went around proclaiming it everywhere. And why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? He tells us, because or for, it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. So God's power is in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. If you want to know and experience and witness and see the power of God, you just need to look at the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. And as human beings, we're familiar with power, right? So the uh, just a few examples of it. The water is very powerful if you want to use it to cut. I remember on October 14, 1987 in Midland, Texas, some I'm dating myself now, some of you will remember this, a young girl named Jessica McClure fell into a well that was eight inches in diameter, that's it. She was about a year and a half old. And she fell in there and one of her legs was over her forehead. So she must've been doing something like the splits. She went down 22 feet uh, into this well and it was rocky soil. So people came out to try and dig her out, but you couldn't dig through the rock fast enough. And it was like 55 or 58 hours before they finally got her out of this well. And the way they did it was they used uh, water jetting, very small streams of water that would cut through rock. And so they dug a hole next to her and then they drilled over to her with this water jet and finally pulled her out. Uh, so again, the, the power of water is just tremendous. I remember thinking as a, whatever I was, a 10 year old, this is incredible, the power of water. Uh, for those of you who are engineers, the power of buildings. Engineers are amazing, right? The Burj Khalifa is a little over a half a mile tall. That is some feat of engineering to have all that standing up in the air, half mile up and it hasn't tipped over yet and it doesn't collapse under its own weight. So again, engineers are very powerful in their abilities. The power of scientists for destruction, Tsar Bomba, the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated in 1961 by Russia, was just an incredibly large explosion, 3,300 times bigger than the nuclear bomb the US dropped on Hiroshima, to put it in perspective. If you were within 22 miles of that bomb, you would have, there'd been basically no trace of you even being there. If you were within 60 miles, you would have had third degree burns and windows broken buildings over 450 miles away from the bomb detonating. Again, powerful. The power of God for salvation though is something altogether different. No human being, no military force, no nation, no scientists, no biologists, no engineers have ever assembled enough power or figured out a way to amass enough power to be able to rescue even one human being from death and from sin. The power of God is the only power in all the universe which is able to save a person. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that power. Now we can measure the strength of an engine with horsepower. We can measure the strength of a Navy by aircraft carriers and submarines. We can measure the strength of a man or a woman by bench press and squat. We can measure the strength of a floor jack by tons. We can measure the strength of hydraulics and air pressure by PSI and the strength of wood and metal by Jenka hardness. But what can we use to measure the power of God for salvation? How much of what kind of power does it take to save a person? How much power does it take for a member of the Holy Trinity to take on human flesh and enter the world without any sin? How much power does it take for Jesus Christ to fully obey every detail of the law of God in his thoughts, words, and deeds with no failure, not even once? How much power does it take to stand in the place of sinners and take their eternal punishment and exhaust it in the span of only about three hours? 
How much power does it take to assemble all that wrath and pour it out and dole it out on the head of Jesus Christ in only three hours' time? How much power does it take to raise Jesus from the dead? How do you pull that off? How much power does it take to bring a child of God from being a dead sinner to alive in Christ and transferring him from a kingdom of darkness into a different kingdom, which is the kingdom of God's beloved son? How much power does that take? Well, we know this. No army, no military, no nation, no scientists, no theologians, no pastors, no human being has ever been able to pull it off. So it's a power that far exceeds any of our abilities. And it's a power that's also radically different than any kind of power we can even conceive of. It's the gospel. And that's the power of God, beloved. This great news of Jesus Christ is where the power of God is invested. And when it shows up, it works wonders in the lives of every single one who repents and who believes. It's a power all in and of itself unique. Now, why is the gospel so powerful? The gospel is powerful because what it reveals, verse 17, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is so powerful? about the gospel, it contains the revelation of God's righteousness. Now, God's righteousness was something which Luther hated, something that he came to dread. In fact, he said this about it. I hated the word righteousness of God because in accordance with the usage and custom of the doctors, I had been taught to understand it philosophically as meaning the formal or active righteousness according to which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unjust. Now, as a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless. I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus a furious battle raised within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. He just flat out says, I hated this righteous God. But he just kept beating his head against the wall. How can you call the righteousness of God revealed as gospel, as good news? <laughs> There's no good news about God revealing that he's better than everybody else and he, by his justice, is going to condemn everybody who doesn't get a righteousness from him. For us, it might be difficult to understand where Luther is coming from because I'm guessing we've got justification down pat for the most part. But I want to bring you back to Luther's day a little bit to help us understand and grasp what it is he was dealing with and why this was such a watershed moment for him. What did the church teach at the time regarding righteousness? Well, here, one Roman Catholic teacher uh, put it this way. The Catholic church teaches that at baptism, the soul passes from a state of original or inherited sin to a state of grace. God does not merely declare the soul to be righteous or just in his sight. He makes the soul holy in itself by producing within it through the activity of the Holy Ghost, a supernatural quality of spiritual goodness, which is a true regeneration, renewal, or righteousness. So the goodness, justice, and righteousness or holiness of a soul in a state of grace is therefore a reality and not merely a fiction. It is imparted to the soul by God, 
satisfying it in its very nature. It is not merely imputed to the soul by God, leaving the soul still contaminated by the filth of sin. Do you catch what he's saying? He's saying this, and the Roman Catholic Church teaches this, that the way a person is justified or approved by God is not by being declared righteous, but by becoming righteous. Not by God saying, I declare you righteous on account of the work of my son, but by being infused and filled up like we're milk jugs needing to be filled with something, being infused with righteousness until our righteousness grows so much that we have actually become righteous, not just declared righteous. And to use the language or to use language of my seminary professor, he said, Roman Catholics believe we're saved by grace through the sacraments, not by grace through faith. But the way you make somebody righteous is you baptize them. Now they've come into a state of grace and then you infuse them, meaning you just pour them to the full with righteousness. How? Mass, penance, repentance, right? All the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, the seven sacraments, you pour people full with those sacraments until their righteousness level just gets to the tippy top and then you just keep them full, right? Just keep filling it up. Now envision yourself as a member of that church in Luther's shoes. If you need a righteousness which will stand before God, you need to be infused with it. And how could you become infused with it? Penance, mass, more time in the monastery. He drove the priests nuts. Why? Why did he drive the priests and the confessional nuts? Because Luther understood if I've got to be infused with righteousness, I've got to, I've got to confess all my sins and I've got to keep going. And I've got to confess my confession because I'm not genuine enough. And just on and on and on it goes. Furthermore, there was something else going on which hindered Luther and others from grasping the clear gospel of justification by faith alone. And R.C. Sproul pointed it out this way. Here's what he said. There was a linguistic trick that was going on here too. And it was this, that the Latin word for justification that was used at this time in church history was justificare. And it came from the Roman judicial system. And the term justificare is made up of the word justus, which is justice or righteousness, and the verb, which means to make. And so the Latin fathers understood the doctrine of justification is what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and elsewhere, makes unrighteous people righteous. Not declares them like we understand it, but makes them righteous by infusing them with righteousness through the sacraments. So Luther wasn't trying to discover how he, how he could be declared righteous by God on the basis of someone else's righteousness. Luther was trying to obtain his own righteousness. He was trying to become righteous. But Luther was also a scholar and he knew his Greek. And as he meditated on the Greek, he realized something. That the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel is not God's own perfect righteousness by which he condemns everyone who is a sinner but it's actually a righteousness which God gives to those who believe. It's a righteousness which is a gift that's given to others. Thus, the righteousness of God is an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of me, not inside of me. Catch that. Luther came to realize this is when the light bulb clicked on. The righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel, which is good news, which is that which can save, is not a righteousness that is injected into me with the sacraments. It's actually a righteousness outside of me 
That's revealed in the gospel. How? It's revealed in Jesus. That's the righteousness. It's not in me. It's separate from me. That's when the light bulbs clicked on. And then one day as he sat in the tower in 1519, this happened. Luther's own words. Finally, God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. Just as intensely as I had hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate of paradise. And later he wrote in his understanding of justification, justification is not a change in man, but the gracious declaration of God by which he pronounces righteous the sinner who in himself is not righteous. Now what a discovery. Incredible discovery. And it's a discovery which down to this day, the Roman Catholic Church continues to militate against, even though any straightforward reading of the passage in Greek makes clear that being righteous before God is not something we are filled up with by the sacraments, as if we were all just, again, empty milk jugs with a stench of rotten milk until someone poured the sacraments into us and filled us up with righteousness. Rather, being righteous before God is something God declares about all who believe in Jesus. Catch what that same Roman Catholic teacher I referenced earlier says about justification. According to Paul, argued Martin Luther, man's justification means that he is reputed or accounted as righteous in the sight of God. And we would say, amen. Yes. (laughs) Although he remains as sinful in his very nature as ever. The change is in God's disposition toward man, not in man himself. Henceforth, God looks upon him with favor instead of disfavor attributing to him the righteousness of Christ, which is in no way really possessed within the soul. Now, it is quite true, catch this, it is quite true that Paul made use of a word which in the Greek language had the technical meaning of legal acquittal. And if the word can have no other meaning than that, one could scarcely dispute the interpretation of justification as implying no more than to be accounted as righteous or not guilty in the sight of God. What a great expression of the gospel, and he just flat out denies it. He goes on to talk about how Luther wasn't scholarly enough or didn't make use of modern scholarship enough. He was just too, he was smart enough to be dangerous and he just took the Greek word for what it was. That justification means to be declared righteous. And that's exactly what it means. If only the Catholic teacher would have gone a step farther and rather than believe his own church dogma, he actually believed the Greek and uh, just read it for what it is. Now, let me conclude this way. with a, with a question, just thinking, do you believe? When I ask you if you believe, and I ask myself if I believe as well, I'm not asking any of us if we go to church. I'm not asking if you're living a good life. I'm not asking if you've done enough for God to be pleased with you. I'm not asking you if you believe, I'm asking you if you believe in Jesus if you trust in him alone to be saved, if you're resting in his obedience rather than your own, he's the only way that God ever declares someone righteous. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if we're churched or unchurched. 
Doesn't matter if we're a law keeper or a rebellious lawbreaker by nature. What matters is whether or not we believe in Jesus. And if we believe, then we are justified. We are declared righteous before God through faith alone. But if we don't believe in Jesus, and we believe in something else or someone else, even in ourselves, then we stand in our own righteousness or in the righteousness of someone who's not Jesus. And that is a horrible place to be in. If we believe in Jesus, though, we are justified. There was a counter-reformation movement uh, really epitomized in the Council of Trent, which met from 1545 to 1563, the Roman Catholics version of saying, how can we get rid of this reformation <laughs> and counter it, right? And settle their errors straight. And in that Council of Trent, Canon 9, they, they, they declare this, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema, accursed, let him be damned. They they taught directly opposed to justification by faith alone, and we would say, no, faith alone justifies. If I believe in Jesus, I am declared righteous by God, and I receive into my account his perfect obedience. Do you believe in Jesus? If you do, then we are to be those people who are not fretting, who are not anxious about whether we have done enough to be counted righteous. You haven't done enough, and I haven't done enough, and no believer in the world has ever done enough to be counted righteous. The issue which Luther discovered in this passage is the issue of what you trust in to be made right with God. We can trust in our own works, our own obedience, our own efforts. We can trust in the church and the sacraments, right? Hoping that by doing them or partaking of them and by being a churchy person, whatever that means, that we're right with God. Or we can trust in the righteousness which God supplies through Jesus that he has revealed in the gospel, a righteousness outside of us that we can't earn, but that Jesus earned, which we can benefit from and be saved by if only we believe in Jesus. So here's the question that all of us have to answer. Do we believe? The righteous shall live, shall be made alive, shall have eternal life by faith. Faith is all you need to be alive to God, to have this eternal life. And it is also what we live by every day of our lives.